Again, welcome to everybody who is here on site, everybody who's watching us online. Thank you for being here. Because of your support, we're able to keep doing this. We're able to keep serving our community, serving each other, being together during these really weird, <laughs> unprecedented days. But anyway, last week we started a new series called Recovery Road. And in this series, what we're doing is we're addressing the state of the world. And we're talking about our place in this world as followers of Jesus. And last week, we started with a message we called We the People. If you missed the message, you can go online, go to YouTube. Uh, you can go to hammockstreetchurch.com. You can find it on our Hammock Street Church app anywhere. Find the message. You can watch it again if you like. But anyway, we talked about how we, as Jesus' people, ought to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. We talked about how if we can remain faithful, we can steer our nation onto the road to recovery. And once we saw that, once we saw that we can only get started once we realize something, once we realize that our problems, the problems that we have, don't begin with they. Our problems begin with me, and our problems begin with we. Last week, I shared with you part of the story of how I came to Jesus. I was miserable in a miserable job, in a miserable work environment, when a coworker who was in the office next to me was showing a different way to do it. So I asked him about the reason that he seemed so hopeful. And instead of telling me about the power of positive thinking, which is what I was expecting, he told me about Jesus which, as it turns out, was a pretty biblical method. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that's exactly what he did, and do it with gentleness and respect. Anyway, I want to give you a little bit more background to that story as we go into today's message. You see, one of the things that made my coworkers' happiness so remarkable and so surprising to me was his backstory, was his history. Because you see, my coworker, my colleague, his name was Jimmy, was a recovering alcoholic and addict. I'd never met an addict before I met Jimmy, at least not knowingly. Probably met some, but didn't realize it. And as a result of that fact, my understanding about addicts and addiction was admittedly not very well considered. Before that time, Quite frankly, I'd never given addiction very much thought at all. And if you'd have asked me my opinion about addicts and addiction, I'd probably have been dismissive, thinking, well, I'll never encounter one anyway. But how wrong I was. So after telling me about Jesus, Jimmy and I became quite close. Like I said, he was the only thoroughly happy and pleasant lawyer in the entire firm. And it was through Jimmy that I was introduced to the world of addiction and recovery. So here are some facts. Did you know that as of last year, there were over 15,000 substance abuse and tr uh, treatment and re rehabilitation centers in the United States? Over 15,000. Here in Florida, we have the largest number of treatment and rehabilitation facilities per capita in the United States. In fact, Florida is widely referred to as the rehab capital of America. Now, Jimmy told me all about AA. Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is an international 
Mutual Aid Fellowship dedicated to helping addicts and alcoholics work peer-to-peer in their sobriety. It was established in 1935. And it was devised around the premise that alcoholism was not a failure of will, not a failure of morals, but an illness from which one must recover. Now, early on, AA was a Christian-based organization. It was connected to the Christian Revivalist Oxford Group. And eventually, another fellowship of alcoholics only was formed and wrote the AA Big Book. The AA Big Book is officially called Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. That's what the big book is really entitled. But the big book contains AA's 12-step recovery plan, 12-step recovery program. Now, Jimmy was sure to tell me that he credited AA's 12-step program with his sobriety and that he will attend meetings, AA meetings, for the rest of his life because, as he explained, you're never cured of an addiction. It always needs to be held in check. He also told me how surprised I would be if I knew the identities of the other people who were attending these AA meetings with him. He told me, without giving me names, of course, because they're all confidential, but he said, judges, lawyers, doctors, architects, prominent business people, he said, you would be shocked that what kind of normal people, everyday people attend these AA meetings. Now, since that time, of course, that was a long time ago, I've seen AA's 12 steps work in people's lives, and I've seen how the program has saved at least dozens of people that I've known. Now, I tell you this all to say that AA understands recovery. So, to guide us today on Recovery Road, we're going to see whether the 12 steps can help us out. By the way, in two weeks, Zach will be preaching next week, we'll be away, but in two weeks we'll be talking about step two. Step two is we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'm guessing you guys could probably figure out the direction we're going to take on that one, but that's in a few weeks. Now, last week I made a bunch of people nervous. You guys emailed me, texted me, called me, because you thought I was going to tell you what your political persuasion needed to be. I didn't do that, did I? I did not. Instead, I told you that as followers of Jesus, as people who've understood that we're all born into this world with a human nature, which we refer to as a sin nature that causes us to rebel against God, as I said a few minutes ago, And our sin rebellion leaves us eternally separated from God, stuck in our disobedience. And that's bad news. But you've also understood that notwithstanding our sinfulness, Jesus loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected forever to God if we will turn from our natural selves and understanding how Jesus paid for our sins when he died, was entombed, and rose from the dead, ascending to heaven and promising to return one day to usher in God's kingdom here on earth, we devote our lives to his lordship. Now, we talked about this a little last week. Even though we're absolutely okay to be interested in politics and to participate in the political process, and even to run for political office, or really any and everything connected with politics. We are absolutely okay to do those things, but as a follower of Jesus, we must always, always keep the main thing the main thing. 
the people of God, the followers of Jesus, have been called to something much higher than politics. As followers of Jesus, we've been called to be a part of the solution to the ills of the world, not a part of the problem. Jesus said this about it. We looked at it last week. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So why do we do that? Well, it's because we think we're doing the right thing. And it's because we don't believe that we have a plank in our own eye. That, and it's far simpler to talk about the speck in someone else's eye than to deal with the plank in our own. Okay, so last week, as I just said, we left off saying that recovery begins with we and not they. Instead of depending upon a they, a politician, an athlete, a celebrity, an artist, an influencer, instead of depending upon one of those people to fix our country, recovery begins with me, and it begins with you. We talked about how, given the fact that there are over 200 million professing followers of Jesus in the United States, if we could just live as God has called us to live, we could make a huge impact on our nation. All right? Anyway, back to AA. Somewhere along the way, a friend gave me a copy of the big book. Anybody ever read the big book? You don't have to raise your hands or anything. Yeah, you can if you want. It's really quite brilliant. It's absolutely worth reading. I think everybody could benefit from following the 12 steps in some area of our lives. Even if you're not struggling with one of the more common addictions like drink or drugs or gambling, everybody could use the 12 steps to deal with certain modern-day addictions, such as our need for approval or our excessive consumerism, or our need for attention, or our need for superficial external affirmation. In other words, we need people to say nice things about us. Or our self-righteousness, which brings us to the starting point for our individual recovery, and ultimately, the recovery of our entire nation. So we're calling this week's message, Taking Inventory. And our starting point is found in AA's step Number four, we've made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's pray one more time. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering us together. God, we're interested and excited to see how your word will guide us to the place to which you've called us. Thank you, God, for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to drill down here. So here's the first question. What does it mean for a person to take a searching and fearless moral inventory? Well, here's what it means. It means that a person is willing to take a deep, honest, critical, no-holds-barred look at themselves and objectively recognize their personal flaws and issues. It means that a person is willing to stop rationalizing bad behavior, stop pointing fingers at and blaming others for their own bad decisions, and stop using their past wounds to justify their present bad actions. It basically means that a person is ready to own their own issues. That's where the road to recovery needs to begin. 
Anyone who's ever recovered from alcohol or drugs or any other kind of addictive behavior will tell you that you never completely recover until you've been completely honest with yourself by way of a searching and fearless moral inventory. So the point of today's message is this. The recovery road begins with a searching and fearless moral inventory. All right, that's pretty simple, isn't it? So what's the problem? Well, the problem is, of course, even though it's a simple fix, it isn't an easy thing to accomplish, not by a long shot. Truth is, we all have a difficult time conducting a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Why is that? Well, because first, we're afraid of taking complete responsibility for our bad decisions. Typically, what we do is we take only partial responsibility for our bad decisions. We typically embrace only part of our shame and part of our guilt, just enough to make us feel better about those bad decisions. And we all do it. And then instead of our being able to move on, we try to explain away our personal responsibility. We say things like, well, yeah, I did it, but if it wasn't for so-and-so, I wouldn't have done it. Or we say, yeah, I did it, but, I, but I, I wouldn't have done it if they didn't do so-and-so. And because we only partially embrace our shame and guilt, we never fully move beyond the pain and shame that our bad actions have given us. And they take up residence in our heart. We get now pain and shame stuck in our hearts. And from there, that pain and shame in our hearts impacts everything else we do. And it's a vicious cycle. Now, anyone who's working on recovery or is going through recovery will tell you you can't do that. It's not the way it works. You can't recover anything by blaming. You can't recover from anything by finger pointing. You can't recover from anything by making excuses. When you don't fully own your behavior, instead of recovering what you do is you're working on a story, a story that'll soften the harsh light of your confession. So you come up with these stories in your mind. Listen, we all do it. We all make up a story. We all have our great built-in excuses. And before long, we start to believe the story that we've created. And then, a little bit after that, we believe we've gotten away with whatever it is that we've done. And after that happens, we just move on. But getting away with ensures that you'll never recover from. And that's not what God wants for you. John 10.10, Jesus said God wants our life to be abundant. And that abundant life will only happen if we recover from and we don't simply get away with whatever it is that we've done. Recovery begins with a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. Now, the second reason that we have such a difficult time conducting that searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves is because we don't know how to do it. We've never been taught to do it. In fact, we've been taught the opposite. Our culture teaches us to make excuses. Our culture teaches us to blame others. Our culture teaches us to take our own guilt and shame and just stuff it deep down inside of ourselves and just carry on with our lives pretending that it doesn't exist, pretending that it isn't even there. And that's damaged our hearts as well. Our culture has made our hearts fearful and our culture has weakened our ability to face our own issues. And that's why the searching inventory has to be fearless. Because it's frightening to fully embrace the consequences of, the effects of the bad decisions that we've made. And it's uncomfortable 
to stop coming up with excuses. Now, sin entering into the world has left us broken and afraid. I say that every week. I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're all a mess. We humans are broken. And it's that brokenness that makes it so tough to own our own responsibility for the decisions we've made, especially if we've been given a good excuse to use for those decisions. There's an illustration of this principle in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. We were talking about the prophets the other night. Major, minor prophet came up, so I want to explain to you what that is. Briefly, the terms major prophet and minor prophet refer to the way that the Old Testament prophetic books are divided. Quite simply, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, those prophetic books, they're just longer books than what we call the minor prophets. That's it. That's why they're major. Both the major and minor prophets, by the way, are usually among the least popular books for Christians to read. How come? Because they're, they're weird. They're difficult to understand. They're filled with what appear to be a bunch of random warnings and random writings. So we kind of avoid it. But there's a lot of good stuff to be found in the prophets. So here's a little background on our verse for today. Jeremiah was dealing with leaders who made some terrible decisions because they wouldn't face their issues and acted as if everything was not as it really was, okay? Now, the prophet Jeremiah lived around 600 B.C., and he's widely known as the weeping prophet because his writings are, are pretty depressing. In fact, some commentators have actually surmised that Jeremiah probably suffered from what we would now call clinical depression. You can read that. You can feel that in his writing. Now, during Jeremiah's time, as a result of Israel's disobedience and the worship of false gods, they were under God's judgment. And whenever Israel was disobedient, as we've read in the Old Testament, God allowed the surrounding nations to invade them. Then Israel would repent, and God would honor their repentance. Well, during this period, Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard of his name, I suspect, the king of Babylon, Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is located, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were the world's superpowers at the time. So Nebuchadnezzar put a man named Jehoiachin on Israel's throne. And even though Nebuchadnezzar permitted Jehoiachin to be Israel's king, he didn't allow him to do much king stuff. He didn't allow him to raise an army. He required Jehoiachin to pay Babylon exorbitant taxes. And before long, Jehoiachin was tired of it. He wasn't going to have it anymore. He determined that Israel was going to declare war against Babylon, against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you need to know that this would be akin to the Turks and Caicos Islands, which you can see on the picture with that arrow, declaring war on the United States. Okay, it wasn't a very good idea to declare war on Babylon. So Jeremiah went to Jehoiachin and said, essentially, are you crazy? We're under God's judgment. We're all going to get killed. And Jehoiachin was unpersuaded. So he began a war. And the Babylonians ended it almost before it start, started. Now, Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem. He put Jehoiachin in chains. And he put another man on the throne, a man named Zedekiah. So next, Jeremiah goes to Zedekiah and tells him, 
Zedekiah, you need to chill. This is the, the living translation. You need to get things settled down. Israel is under God's judgment. So before you do anything, you need to bring Israel to repentance and back to God. And if you can do that, God will honor his covenant with Israel. Zedekiah, however, also decided to raise an army and take on Nebuchadnezzar. So Jeremiah went back to him and said, dude, do you even read history? It didn't work before when Jehoiachin tried it essentially last week. And it's not going to work now. And Zedekiah said, essentially, yeah, I'm going to raise an army anyway. I think we could do it this time. To which Jeremiah again said, this is no time to raise an army. We're under God's judgment. What our people need is repentance. Zedekiah didn't listen, and the Babylonians crushed Israel one more time. So in his book, Jeremiah is essentially saying, God, what is up with your people? They are bananas. What the heck? And in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah made a statement that will help us understand the way that our hearts work and also help us explain some of what we experience around us every single day. And it ain't good. It's true, but it ain't good. So now we're looking at all of this because if we can understand it, then we can use our understanding as a life filter that has the power to help us understand ourselves. It's an idea that if we can embrace it as God's people, if we can embrace this idea as a nation, we could begin our road to recovery. So here is our verse. It's from Jeremiah 17, 9. A lot of you have heard it before. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? All right, so what's happening here? Well, let's begin with the use of the word deceitful. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful. He didn't say the heart is dishonest. Why is that significant? Well, think about it. We understand and we can usually spot dishonesty. We can typically tell if someone's lying to us, if they're giving us a blatant lie. Now, deceit, on the other hand, is different. Deceit is made by mixing a little bit of truth and a little bit of lie. And that mix is... This makes it tough to know what's true and what's not. Our hearts, by the way, we understand that's being our metaphorical hearts, not the organ in our chest that pumps our blood. Our hearts are by nature broken and as a result of the fall of man and sin entering the world. And these broken hearts of ours are untrustworthy. We cannot and should not always believe the things that our hearts lead us to believe. Though it sounds pretty crazy, pretty wild, we actually lie to ourselves and then we believe our own lies. We do that all the time. I do that all the time. It begins when we've told a story to excuse something that we've done, and then we tell that story over and over again for so long that it becomes our reality. When that happens, we can't make any progress. Our hearts are deceitful above all things, and that deceitfulness is, as Jeremiah said, beyond cure. There is legitimately nothing we can do to fix our hearts. The incurable sin that impacts us every single day cannot be fixed and it cannot be cured. It's like a virus. So all we can do about it is diagnose it and then manage it. The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. And our instinct is not to do a fearless moral inventory. Our instinct is to create a story we can live with so we can avoid 
all that accountability. Now, in the spiritual world, that makes no sense. And that's why Jeremiah exclaimed, who can understand it? You just feel his frustration. Ugh, who can understand that? You know when you do something really dumb and you go, oh, why did I do that? Anybody ever experienced that little feeling? How about, oh, why did I eat that? Hmm? All the time you can ask Beth, I'll eat something and I'll say, why did you let me eat that? She says, I didn't let you eat that. We think to ourselves, why did I drink that? Why did I tank that? What was I thinking? That's Jeremiah's tone. That's what made him say, who can understand that? It's wild. The deceitfulness of our hearts is a permanent condition. And if you don't tend to it for your entire life, you'll be filled with those frustrated moments. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? That's why those fearless moral inventories are so vital. That's why recovery has to begin with a fearless moral inventory. Okay, now what? Now, I could just end here, keep things vague, and tell you you have to take a fearless moral inventory, and then let you figure out what that looks like. I could do that. But I don't want to do that. I have a few more minutes. And I know that a fearless moral inventory is scary and uncomfortable. And I know that people tend to avoid things that are scary and uncomfortable. But I want you to thrive. And more importantly, God wants you to thrive. And in order for you to thrive, you're going to have to master this skill. And then you're going to have to use it for the rest of your lives. And though the prospect of doing that is scary, we don't have to worry. We have no reason to fear. Because no matter what, God has promised us forgiveness. So there's no reason for you to cower, and there's every reason for you to do that fearless moral inventory of your life and expose it to God's truth, because that's how we recover, and that's how God will bring you abundance. So to help you out, here are some places that you might start. This is not definitive. This doesn't describe anyone or everyone. These are just some places to start. Now, do you have an issue with any group of people? Not any individual people, any group of people, with people of any particular race or ethnicity or place of origin or orientation or political party or any other common identifier. Anytime you hear about a person from one of those groups do something bad, you go, yep, there it is. Told you, that's what they do. Have you felt this way for a long time? Well, that means you've never recovered from whatever it was that you were taught about them or that you think about them. But no matter how you got there, no matter where it came from, it isn't right. And you know that, at least on some level. And even though I'm using very general terms to bring it up, if in your mind you're playing out your well-worn excuse story, well, you don't understand, a so-and-so did this to my family, or a member of whatever party ruined our town council, or a person from wherever ripped off my grandfather when he came to America. If you found yourself doing that, it means you've never recovered. And even if the reason you have for your negative feelings is valid, and sometimes those reasons will be valid, the question still remains, how long are you going to do that? How long are you going to live like that? When are you going to get over that? When are you going to bring these feelings to God and take a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourselves? Because when Jesus came, he said this, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if God loved the world enough to send his one and only son 
to save his people, we're just not permitted to discount another group of people, any people that God loves. If God loves them, we need to love them. And as a result, we need to move past whatever it is that we've been carrying around. And the only way that we can accomplish that is to, guess what, take a a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Not only that, some of you have things in your past that you felt really bad about at the time, but you've never taken full responsibility for them. How do dogs know? Over the years, you've come up with stories that you play over in your head to assuage some of your feelings of guilt and shame. And every time you think of the incident, you just go over your cover story again. Well, that same God who loves the world loves you too. And he's capable of relieving you of all of that guilt and shame, but you need to bring it to him. Because you see, If you'll just take that searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself and then take that incident to God, God will shower you with his grace and you'll be on your way to recovery, to fully experiencing the love that God has for you. Are you starting to see it? All right, so how do you get started? Well, it's going to take a little homework. So you can start by asking yourself, for example, the following, one of the following questions. What's the real reason that I don't like whomever? Or what's the real reason I can't stay in a relationship? Or what's the real reason I can't make any friends? Or what's the real reason I can't find a job? Or what's the real reason I can't stop doing something destructive? Or what's the real reason I can't be more generous? Or what's the real reason I can't be more forgiving or more gracious? What's the real reason I can't forgive whomever? And instead of defaulting to your tried and true excuse story or replaying your masterful blame game, what if you take some time and do your searching and fearless, your I don't care how it makes me feel, I don't care if it's terrifying, I don't care if it leaves me in a puddle on my bathroom floor crying my eyes out, your searching and fearless moral inventory. We have finally, once and for all, say to yourself, I'm not going to carry all this garbage anymore. I'm going to give it all up because I want the full-on grace of God and forgiveness of God, and I know that I've never received it because I've never fully admitted how much I need it. You think that would change your life? Still not sure? Well, to help you see it, I want you to think about it in this context. What if one of our congressmen or congresswomen announced on C-SPAN, here's what they announce, for the last 20 years I've served my district and I've made my living, leveraging my whole career around being an advocate for the poor, but today I want to confess, I don't even like poor people. I don't even like being around poor people. I only go around poor people for the photo ops, and I'm always thinking about how quickly I can rush into my limo and drive off. I'm a total hypocrite. My district deserves better. Therefore, I am resigning. I am stepping down. You think that would change the world a little bit if Congress did that? Or imagine if one of our congressmen or women came out and said, listen, I have to resign. Because the truth is, I'm so beholden to special interest groups that every time I look at a bill, every time I'm in a meeting, every time I have to make a decision, my real concern is not my constituents, is not the people I represent. It's the interest groups who pay to keep me in office. What if your congressman or woman said, our nation deserves better than that, and I'm facing up to that reality, and I am quitting? Now, I know some of you are thinking, wow, if 
that happened, most of Congress would be gone. Well, yeah, probably. But could you imagine the moral lift in this nation if our leaders did that kind of searching and fearless moral inventory and then acted on it? Now, if you're tempted to go, well, yeah, but those guys, they're horrible. Well, guess what? <laughs> you need to do it first. And so do I. Recovery begins with me. Recovery begins with me. Not with we. Not with they. Recovery begins when God's people, those of us who say, oh, forgiveness is just on the other side of personal transparency, will lead the way and say, I'm going to stop with the excuses. I want to be fully alive in my faith, and I don't want, to hold, I don't want anything holding me back anymore. So I'm going to take a searching and fearless moral inventory and start to live the life for which God has made me. Because if our nation is ever going to recover, that's where we'll need to start. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us into the prophets, listening to Jeremiah, understanding that our hearts are not trustworthy, but you are. So God, help us as we examine our lives and figure out our part in bringing this world back to you. God, we thank you for this time. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.